Hi, I'm George Tekmachev with another edition of the Eastern Target Archery Podcast, this special edition with World Archery Secretary General, Mr. Tom Dillon. Tom, thank you for joining us from uh, your office in Lausanne. Pleasure, George. Uh, always a pleasure to talk with you and uh, keep you an update on what's happening in the world of world archery. Yeah, well, there's a lot happening in the world of world archery and other sports as well uh, this week, and so I, I, I suppose we might as well dive in and and bring it up. Uh, there's there's a lot of concern uh, in a lot of places, um, some of which is justified, obviously, and um, some of which is overblown by the media, probably. But uh, no doubt that there's been an effect on certain events and the schedule for those events. Um, archery, no different. Yeah, absolutely, uh, George. Uh, it's clear that uh, the whole uh, situation with the uh, the virus, the coronavirus, uh, is, is affecting sport in general. Um, so, okay, uh, I think it's uh, common knowledge now that the second uh, World Cup stage in uh, that was scheduled in Shanghai will now take place uh, one week later in Antalya, um, which is great for Europeans because they can do two, two tournaments in a row in Antalya, first the World Cup and then the, World, the European Championships. Um, but it's clear that this is causing uh, many changes and many uh, impacts to uh, organizers and so on. Um, uh, we have, for instance, the Swiss indoor championships that uh, were scheduled this weekend that have been cancelled. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure, and also in Italy, there have been uh, all competitions are cancelled for the next two weeks. So there is, there is an impact on our sport. Um, and uh, it's clear the safety of the athletes comes first. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, people also should should be clear that uh, there is an, an, an overreaction to, to some of it. Um, it's strange that no one in the press is mentioning the number of people that have recovered, which is uh, amazing. Uh, it's, it's more than half uh, already now and uh, especially in, in the area where it's all started yes in fact if you look at the uh there's a chart for this kind of thing and if you look at the chart the numbers in china appear to be improving and flattening out as it were yeah absolutely and uh, i um, we were aware that for instance the chinese team was looking at going and practice outside of china uh, to make sure that they would be ready for major events and so on. And the conclusion now clearly is that they will rather stay in China because the situation is very much uh, going in the right direction in China. Uh, yeah, so speaking to some friends of mine in Japan, which uh, you know is an area that had some concern, of course, and uh, they're planning to proceed with all of their Olympic trials, and they're planning to proceed with sending a team to the World Cup taking place this upcoming weekend in uh, in Asia, in in Thailand. Um, but the you know the the general consensus in Japan is that the schools are closed right now. The Senbatsu, the high school championship, has been cancelled, which is uh, you know a significant move. But all of that's because of Japan, you know, taking some strong action to try to avoid the kind of situation that took place in China early on in the situation. And uh, and I think we'll, you know, obviously see that kind of move in some other places. But as you pointed out, um, you know, before we started the show, uh, the biggest event of the year, that has already got an unequivocal uh, statement being made. 
Yeah, today the IOC executive board made it very clear, and also the Tokyo organized made it very clear the, the Olympics will go ahead. Uh, and uh, it's clear that there might be some of the, I would say, the preparations might be changed. Uh, there is some test tournaments that are coming up and there might be a different approach to them. Uh, the volunteer uh, training might be a little bit uh, adapted and so on. So the, the, it will have an impact as such, but uh, it is very clear that based on, on what we know today, because, okay, we can't predict the future either, but on the 24th of July, uh, there will be a ranking round and there will be an opening ceremony following with... Uh, mixed in competition on the 25th of July, 2020. Yeah, I think the only question at this at this time is what kind of spectator situation will there be and, you know, that sort of thing. But that's for the future and we'll see we'll see what the future brings. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, uh, also on that one, uh, especially for what concerns our sport being an outdoor sport, the, the risks are much lower than for an indoor sport where you have air conditioning and so on and so on. But uh, for, for our sport, the capacity of the venue is already not that big, uh, so uh, it shouldn't be any issue on, on that side. Now, it's clear if you put uh, 20,000 people inside uh, a basketball stadium, it could be a different uh, situation. Sure. And, you know, uh, let's face it, the Olympics have been moving toward more and more of a televised experience than ever. And, um, and who knows, that might, be, that might be how a lot of people end up watching uh, this summer. Absolutely. Speaking of television, uh, how did uh, the ratings go for our, for the uh, for the indoor World Series? It seems to me that it uh, it had pretty good coverage. Well, we haven't got any specific figures yet, but the the initial feedback has been very good. Uh, I think we had uh, a great uh, coverage uh, of of the the finals. Uh, as well as some of the, the, I would say, summaries, highlights in the lead up to it. But uh, I think it was a, a good, uh, a, a good uh, decision to, to promote it. And then NBC uh, was ready to, to, to jump on it and, and took it very well. And uh, yeah, no, uh, we, we are pleased and uh, uh, we will look in how we can evolve for next year and uh, see what we can do. And you're continuing with NBC, right? That's a... Uh... Not a short term. Uh, I would say uh, our, our our current agreement is is ending the end of this year, but the initial discussion is very positive, and uh, we are uh, we are convinced that we can continue with them uh, as our partner uh, in uh, the US, and uh, uh, we have a great relationship also with them during the Olympics. So um, we're we're quite optimistic that this will go the right way. We're also doing a special feature on our current world champion uh, with and for them, uh, which uh, we hope will get a lot of uh, coverage in the US uh, when it's finished and uh, really look forward. I, I, I hear a lot of, uh, I would say, interesting stories coming out of this and, and this will be really one of the highlights uh, of the, the pre-Olympics, a uh, uh, very uh, nice documentary on, on Brady Allison and, and his story so far. Is that the, uh, among other things, I, I think I got sat down for an interview on that one. Absolutely. So. <laughs> well, that'll be, uh, that'll be very interesting to see, I'm sure. The, um, just getting back to the calendar a bit. Um, so the changes uh, in, in detail. We've got Shanghai 
being moved back to the fall as the finals venue. And this would have been the first time in the history of the World Cup that Turkey would have sat out a year. Everybody looks forward to going to Turkey, and they get to go again. There's a three-day gap between Turkey, which will be a week later than Shanghai would have been. And then the European Championship takes place in Turkey um, three days after the conclusion of the World Cup. So that that works out really nicely, particularly for the European teams that are going to want to participate at the European Championship. And then... um, what else uh, are we looking at now? Are, are are we fluid as far as the rest of the calendar goes, or do you think the other World Cup events? <laughs> well, it's, it's, I would say um, uh, you would have to ask that question to me every day. I'm afraid, uh, sure. Because okay, we can't we can't give a, an answer to that today. Um, from our side, uh, I, we, we, we looked very much at what the impact will be on the Olympic qualifications. Uh, we know that certain sports have a real challenge because they make their qualification based on rankings. And it's clear that rank, if you're based on a ranking system and you have certain athletes that cannot travel to some of the tournaments uh, or some events that were planned, are being cancelled, then it has a major impact on the Olympic qualification. Yeah, so very at good point. Moment, we yeah, we so are very fortunate moment, that we don't have that situation. Exactly, and uh, and okay, and, and I must say it's 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 a it's a it's a kind of qualification system we've been looking at as such, but the, the I would say the events clearly show that maybe it's not the best approach, or for sure it's not the only approach, and um, so. Looking at Olympic qualifications, we will have Monterey in a few days, uh, where there is, at time of speaking, no risk. We have um, the qualifier in Oceania, in Fiji, the same. Then we have Antalya, uh, and you could say the, the, the only major country at risk is Italy, and they can't qualify any positions there because they already have one man and one woman. Right, so they have to wait for Berlin. Uh, they will have to wait for Berlin. And so the only, I would say, real risk that could be exist for qualification for the Olympic Games is Berlin. But um, uh, for instance, this weekend, last weekend, all the soccer matches were being held in Germany. There was absolutely no cancellation of any major sporting or cultural event in Germany. For instance, they had a very successful uh, Bundesliga final in, in uh, archery. So uh, so far today on uh, this Tuesday in March, there is no major impact on the Olympic qualification as such. Now, having said that, might there be other tournaments being cancelled? Yes, could happen. But uh, from a pure, uh, I would say, Olympic perspective, it will not have an impact. the World Field Championships in uh, Yankton are far away, uh, so we shouldn't have major issues there either. Uh, and then, okay, by the time we get to indoor, I think uh, we should be well ahead of the whole uh, situation. Yes, I, I would tend to agree based on the current knowledge and you know what we know now. This, this, this podcast may end up aging terribly or may end up being prescient. There's no telling. But uh, yeah. but right now, from where we sit, um, you know, I, I'd say that uh, go on with the show seems to be the the main focus here. 
Absolutely, and, and and the thing is that okay, yes, there is uncertainty. Yes, there are I would say uh, a level of of risk, uh, especially in certain parts of the world. But um, if if we would take the same approach to the general flu, or even uh, uh, car accidents, or uh, other. Things that that have fatal outcomes. Um, it, it is at the moment, uh, I would say, more an overreaction to the unknown than to real facts. Partly a uh, potentially a um, reflection of our modern media and how news is disseminated, that kind of thing. But uh, hey, we'll certainly keep an eye on it. Um, Let's let's uh, change topics uh, momentarily here. There's a there's an event that a lot of people aren't aware of that is going to be taking place later this year, and that is the Gymnasiad. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So this is uh, an event uh, taking place uh, in China in uh, later on this year, which is for high school students. Uh, so it's a, a similar age bracket than the Youth Olympic Games. However, there is one major difference with the Youth Olympic Games, which is that uh, it's held every two years. Uh, so we don't have, as with the current situation with the Youth Olympic Games, where there is every time one age bracket of uh, kids that miss the possibility to compete. Uh, the other uh, big difference is that uh, contrary to the Youth Olympic Games in Senegal, we will have um, a mixed international team as well, uh, because that we used to have that in the Youth Olympic Games up until Buenos Aires. But for Senegal, that is disappearing from the program, whereas in the in the Gymnasiat, that will uh, be kept. And so there will be two mixed team events, a regular mixed team and, a re and an international mixed team, as well as an individual competition. Now, this is kind of a win for archery, which only was added to the program for this event uh, about four years ago, and now is considered part of the event, right? Yes, now uh, we have signed during our last Congress uh, a memorandum of understanding with the internationals school sport federation and so it's now becoming a, a mandatory part of the program and, and we really see this as a, a very positive step forward towards the future and, and we will see how we can expand the program as such and how we can work uh, more with the, inter the national school sport organizations through our national uh, archery federations so uh archers who were born between 2003 and 2005 can compete in this particular university ad and um you can get more information if you're in the u.s from the uh from usa archery i presume absolutely so you can contact your national archery federation and uh, there is even a provision that in case there is no national school sport federation member of isf that they uh, find solutions that they can still compete as such but if there is a respective uh, national school sport organization, it is through that that the, the process will work. And uh, I know in the U.S. that is the case. And this is in October. This will take place between the 17th and the 24th of October for archery. And um, that, that should be a great event. I, I cannot imagine what a tremendous opportunity that would have been back in, you know, my high school days to be able to compete in something like that. I, I uh, you know, we didn't have anything like that then. So this is... Uh, just further uh, growth for our sport. 
Absolutely. This is, and, and okay, we all know that most of the, the, the top successful uh, national teams are very much based on a, on a system that starts with school sport at some stage. So it's really a, a good development tool for our sport. Speaking of a development, um, one of the questions we got on our Eastern Target Archery Facebook page recently uh, was how do we feel about the addition of archery by the Indian Federation to the Commonwealth Games as a kind of a side event because the Commonwealth Games are taking place in Birmingham in the UK but don't have archery in them. But uh, the question we got was, uh, you know, is that is that a positive thing that, that the Indian Federation has gone ahead and taken on archery as part of the event? And I think the answer there is kind of obvious. Oh, the answer is very clearly yes. Uh, it's I would say it's it's I would say a, 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 a winning situation for all parties because uh, for CGF it's a way of adding two sports in a certain way to the Commonwealth Games program. Uh, for the Indians, it's two sports shooting and archery, in which they are very strong, uh, and it's also I would say an opportunity for the Commonwealth Games Federation to explore uh, a multi-country approach to organizing multi-sport games. Uh, so it is it is a step forward and it's a way of, of uh, uh, having our sport included, uh, I would say, halfway in the next Commonwealth Games with a real option for the future to be included. Now, there will be challenges with the event. Uh, but uh, we are we are very grateful both to CGF and to the the Indian uh, Commonwealth Association for having taken this initiative, and we fully support it. And we think it's a really good development tool. Uh, and we think, especially uh, uh, on the Asian uh, countries, but also for Oceania, uh, Africa, uh, the Americas, especially the Caribbean. And, uh, of course, also uh, to the, the home nations, uh, which are part of R2GB. The, um, the change to what has happened with World Archery Congress and the potential for it to be moved to the World Cup final stage, um, is that going to have any impact this year? Are we, uh, we're not doing a Congress this year, right? Yeah, this year there's no Congress, so the, the, the first impact could be 2021. Now it's still very much under discussion, and there will only be a decision in our board meeting in uh, during the Olympic Games in in, uh, in Tokyo. So until July of this year, I can't give you more information on that. Uh, at the moment, uh, it might not have an effect, uh, or it might have an effect. We will see. Uh, Yankton made it clear to us that they can do the Congress. But we will see what uh, proposals we have for 2021 World Cup final. Okay. The reason I bring it up is because I was wondering, I was prefacing the question of clumsily, by the way. <laughs> Sorry about that. The uh, question of whether we're going to see any rule changes in the next uh, 12 months or so uh, of, any, of any sort. My, my answer to that is yes, and then my answer is, which, if you ask me which ones, uh, then my answer will be I have no clue, um, because I, what the process will be is that, well, first of all, every national federation could propose certain rule changes, so those I can't, I would say, predict what will come out of that. Uh, however, we will also have uh, uh, 
uh, a joint committee meeting. So all our permanent committees from tariff committee to field and 3D to medical, churches, athletes, coaches, and so on. We will have a meeting of all the committees together uh, towards the end of the year. And then we will really define uh, what changes we will put forward as such. Now, one of the changes that has already been discussed in the last joint committee meeting, and that will definitely come on the table, is uh, the target phase change, the target phase size, and a possible change uh, for outdoor, for indoor, uh, could also be for field and 3D. Uh, uh, we will see uh, what comes out of that discussion. I think there will be an approach towards the high-level competition, but also what can we do for the more recreational side. So today it's impossible for me to give an indication in which direction we are going, uh, but uh, there will be changes proposed to 2021 Congress, for sure. And those changes, for example, could affect the indoor target and could affect uh, potentially the uh, world records that exist currently. Uh, if that target is changed, you'd have a whole new set of world records, potentially. Yes, that's a possibility, uh, and the same for outdoor. Uh, so it's 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 uh, it's difficult to say at the moment which way it will go, but it will be a very, I would say, uh, a process which will involve, uh, especially athletes, coaches, committee, and respective technical committees, and and then we will see what our members will decide about it in Congress, because maybe uh, there will be some significant changes proposed, but uh, Congress might not like them. So we will see how it goes. And uh, um, I think uh, there is uh, quite some research that is making, being taken place uh, by, by some spe people that, that know very much about it. Uh, the other thing that we are looking at uh, in more detail is, okay, how can we optimize um, the time um, of, of our athletes during uh, events, uh, because, um, for instance, the addition of uh, number of teams that participate in the eliminations is great for having more teams, but it also had an impact on basically the events becoming longer. And unfortunately, there is only 52 weeks in a year, which causes, especially for the more professional athletes, challenges in terms of travel and getting from one event to the other and being on time and having the best preparation for, for a different event. So it is something we are looking very much at on how we can optimize things for the future so our sports remains attractive and, and, and good for both athletes and people following it. And after all, change is what was required to keep our sport in the Olympic Games in the first place. And uh, if there's a constant in, in any high-level um, endeavor of this kind, it, it is definitely the fact that change is part of the, part of the deal. If, if you don't change, you will go back. That's clearly the, 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 the reality of, of life. Now, we, we are not looking at... Uh, major changes as far as I can see either. So it's, it's, it's in certain things, it's fine tuning rather than making new changes, but there will be changes. Maybe changes that will be a lot more uh, impactful for us as archers than might be for spectators, as an example. I mean, the average spectator might not notice the difference in a proportional indoor target versus a, 
you know, standard target as it stands today. Your crystal ball is as good as mine. Fair enough, Tom. Hey, Tom Dillon, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the time that you uh, have often spent with us, and I, I sure hope the schedule uh, works out so that we get to see each other in this upcoming week down in, uh, in Thailand for the Asia Cup. Hope so, too. See you there. Okay, faithful listeners, thanks for your, all your uh, Facebook questions this week. We, uh, Steve would have been joining us, but we had some technical issues, and so... Uh, sort of tackling this thing and we'll uh we'll have steve back for the next one. First question comes from daryl hunt why can't we get more frequent podcasts see above <laughs> daryl also wants to know why do these pro comps shoot so good without me finding the seam or stiff side um well daryl the reason is because the pro comp is made in such a way that it does not typically have a stiff side now you might find that if you rotate the arrow a little bit, uh, that you get a better knock alignment or that you get a better, uh, you know, uh, combination of things going on. But generally speaking, all Eastern arrows have very, very low spine around the shaft variation. Um, one of the things that Easton pays a lot of attention to in the construction process. Chris Gorman, uh, your question, Chris, was addressed by Tom Dillon as to whether, uh, shooting an archery in the Commonwealth Games is a win for archery. Uh, Tom mentioned that, yeah, that's absolutely a win. Uh, Chris mentions that he has mixed thoughts on this. As to him, the main bonus of archery at multi-sports games is it catches the attention of people who might not otherwise look at archery. Well, believe me, Chris, it'll still get attention that it wouldn't have had if it weren't there at all. Sarah, our old friend, is asking... Uh, whether we've learned things in other sports besides archery that have helped our archery game. Well, yeah. Uh, for me, competing in action pistol uh, certainly has been one of those things, and also in, in motorcycle racing. And Steve, of course, high-level athlete in, uh, in college basketball. And uh, I think that there's plenty of things that, that other sports bring to archery. And I'll point out that there's plenty of things that I've learned in archery that I've brought to other sports. I'm sure that's more or less a universal, a universal truth for our sport. You know, you can learn so much about the mental game in particular, uh, you know, with archery that applies to, to other sports. And in fact, uh, a lot of things that I've done in, in uh, for example, in action pistol have been a result of things I've learned shooting Olympic rounds. So there's no question that, that there's a, a carryover factor. Jeff Jenkins is asking the question, Aluminum or carbon for indoors? Uh, I had someone tell me that aluminum has a higher chance of bending when shooting at bags like those found in Vegas. Any shred of truth to that? By the way, I'm shooting the Easton uh, SD27 shaft, the Superdrive 27 shaft for indoors and love it. Well, Jeff, the, the truth is that uh, as long as it's reasonably tuned, an aluminum arrow is going to perform just as well as a carbon arrow in the kind of bags, the Morel target butts that are used in Vegas. Now, in you know the really heavy European target butts, your 12-wall aluminums, uh, if you don't pull them straight out, yeah, you could have some issues. But generally speaking, the benefit of the aluminum is it won't wear down, whereas carbon, anybody's carbon, will wear down fairly rapidly being shot into those really hard European targets. Uh, the super drives have some special consideration for that, but uh, a lot of carbon arrows are going to wear at a fairly high rate being shot into those materials. So there's a trade-off. 
Uh, Dylan is asking, can we explain setting your peep height at a certain distance and the benefits of it past 20 yards? This all has to do with the biomechanics of getting into your, your anchor, uh, Dylan, and different face shapes and different individuals are going to have different needs in that area. So uh, we'd need a little more information for a specific individual. But basically, what you're doing is you're setting your peep height so that at your anchor, you can center up the peep and center up the body of your scope. And, um, you know, it does definitely have benefits for you, you know, when you're shooting out to say 60 or more. Michael Smith uh, is asking the question, talk about arrow selection for kids shooting draw lengths in the 18 to 20 inch range with low draw weights, say 20 to 30 inches for indoor and 3D. Uh, You know, the Carbon 1 is sort of a good higher end option for kids uh, shooting in those draw lengths. It goes all the way down to spine values that are relevant for that. But honestly, the Jazz type arrows are, are really a good value. And either way, Um, when you're talking about arrow selection, if you're talking about leaving the arrow longer to break down the spine, Easton has a youth chart and that youth chart is adjacent to the regular chart. Use that chart to determine the optimal setup for a kid that might be shooting a, uh, a setup like what you're talking about. You know, those really low draw lengths, uh, low draw weights. And that youth chart is exactly what you need for that. Clint is asking the question, when tuning your arrows for your compound bow, what method would you suggest? I use Archer's Advantage for my Matthews TRX-38, but it says my 327 foot per second IBO rated bow is actually shooting 305. So I'm using a weaker spine arrow to get to the optimal zone, but then I bear shaft tune, and according to this info, the arrows shoot off from the center as a weak spine. Well, there's a couple of things going on here, Chris, uh, Clint, rather. And one of those is that the typical bow company does tend to fudge the IBO numbers a little bit because IBO, it, the nature of that particular standard, which is not really a standard, is that it gives you up to a three-quarter inch draw length variation. It gives you a lot of, uh, a lot of fudge factor, shall we say. And so that does make it a little tough to go off of the rating for the bow Um, if you're, if you're finding that you're plugging in a theoretical number with Archer's Advantage and you haven't plugged in an actual weighted arrow through a chronograph, that's where things can get a little wonky. Uh, it may be that your, that your arrow is a little weak. And in that case, fortunately, you can make an adjustment on that particular Matthews using the top hat system. Jim Park wants to know, our our friend Jim Park in Australia, any progress in stopping high draws and also stopping archers drawing with the arrow aimed off to the side, which is a couple of things that are uh, triggers for Jim Park and lots of other folks too. Well, um, I would say yes and no. Uh, More and more archers are aware of the need to prevent, especially compound, high draw or sky draw as it uh, is often called because you don't have control of the string. Your, your release aid could fail. Your release aid could go off and you could send an arrow 300 yards downrange in a, in a venue where you might not have 300 yards of downrange. And so, you know, World Archery is constantly uh, working on 
educating judges and educating shooters. And I think that, yeah, there's been some progress. Uh, you're seeing somewhat less of it. And the other consideration here is, you know, what looks like a high draw might not be depending on where you are in the power stroke. So, yeah, I, I think we're seeing some progress, but I, I don't think that, uh, that we're necessarily seeing progress in terms of getting everybody to shoot completely level. Some people biomechanically raise the bow a little bit when they get into it. And, you know, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, Mike Pistelli is asking a fairly technical question. And, and that is, what will be the new normal dot round of the NFAA decides to change the field round after sectionals? Arrow count goes down from 112 to 72 Less chances to screw up. He says he predicts more clean dot rounds and X scoring may be the next progressive step for amateurs in the tracks of pros. Well, there's there's no telling uh, what's going to happen. We'll have to, we're just going to have to see. Um, but one thing for sure, archers will rise to the occasion. If you give people a chance to shoot higher scores, sooner or later they will. Marty is asking, has Steve decided on a new hinge or staying with the French one? Uh, Steve's been shooting an HBC for some time now, and uh, and that seems to be working well for him. That's the one that's got the adjustability. You can add different pieces to it for different amounts of finger on that thing. Spencer uh, is asking the question, uh, preferred way to fletch arrows for indoor and 3D, straight or helical? Any advantages or differences from straight or one degree versus four degree versus five degree. Well, you didn't specify, Spencer, whether you're shooting compound or recurve. If you're shooting recurve, crank it. Put all the put all the helical on there. You can manage as long as you get the tip and tail of the vein or feather to sit flat on the arrow shaft. But if you're shooting compound, remember you've got to have clearance. Um, X10 Pro Tour setup for sixty pounds, twenty nine inch draw is a question we get from Jay. Jay, you need to give us more info because we need to know specifically what kind of bow. Got a question here from Marcus Anir, our friend in Australia. He wants to know about syntactic foam. What is it and how did it end up in limbs? Well, um, if you ever listened to our Easton Target Archery podcast on the history of Easton, I think the second episode of that, we got into that a little bit, but I'll tell you the story again. Syntactic foam was originally developed to provide for a crush-proof material to be used in the dive planes of American nuclear submarines in the 1960s. And the idea is that these fair water planes, as they're called, which are extensible from uh, part of the submarine, they're hollow. And you cannot leave them hollow. You'd have to either fill them with water or you'd have to, you know, build them uh, to be like a pressure hull or they would crush as the, as the boat would submerge and, and go down to operating depths, which can be, you know, uh, on the order of uh, 300 meters, even uh, some of these uh, boats or some of that stuff's classified, but you know, these things operate at 1500 feet below the surface of the ocean sometimes, which is a super high pressure environment. So syntactic foam is basically a material that was made to be crush proof. Well, it turns out that in order for a recurve limb to work, you want to avoid the use of a material that can be compressed in the core. The, the job of the core is to hold the skins apart, and that's what provides the, uh, the, the, the spring effect of the limb. An Easton engineer named Gary Felice 
developed syntactic foam in the use of bow limbs. In fact, he holds the patent for it. And um, what what is syntactic foam? Syntactic foam is made up of a combination of a polymer, usually an epoxy-based polymer, and microspheres. Microspheres are hollow glass spheres with a really thin wall, and they're quite small. If you were to take a handful of microspheres and toss them in the air, they, a lot of them would just kind of float there for a bit before they'd settle out. It um, is super lightweight. Think of it almost like soap bubbles, but with glass instead of soap. Because they're spherical, they're really good for high pressure. And when you mix them with the epoxy, depending on the proportion of the spheres, depending on how big the spheres are and how thick the walls are, you can custom dial the exact density of the syntactic foam. So what you've got is a material that's essentially crush-proof. The bubbles are of a fixed uniform size, and they're made of a... uh, a fairly high strength material. So you end up with a, a very good material for a recurve core. Tom Duncan, what happened to what remained of George's hair? Well, that story on the next Easton Target Archery podcast.